If you ever wanted to travel in time to an alternative universe, today is your day. For those listeners who've lived in Seattle for a couple decades, do you remember the Seattle Commons Project, the colossal park north of downtown that never happened? The failed South Lake Union project of the 1990s divided our communities and fueled passionate conversations throughout Seattle's bars, coffee shops, and across water coolers about what the city should look like in the future. Well, today we're going to travel back in time and look at a segment of our city's history and how one decision could have seriously altered the future of our city. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you're listening to EK on the Go. We are joined today by Atlas Obscura Society Seattle Field Agents, that is a mouthful, Christopher Blado of Research and Action, LLC, and Weston Brinkley of Street Sounds Ecology. These guys will transport us to Seattle's recent past to explore the Seattle Commons Project, our city's historic opportunity to design what was touted as Seattle's equivalent of New York's Central Park on the shores of South Lake Union. So today we're gonna look at the process and theories used by urban planners like Chris and Weston to make our cities healthier, more family-friendly, and more desirable places to live for everyone. We'll explore the details of the proposed Commons Park. It was narrowly defeated by Seattle voters twice in 1995 and once again in 1996. This was a transformative moment in our city, and it also ended up producing, perhaps unintendedly, the South Lake Union neighborhood, or SLU, SLU. We'll also look at the logistics of the Seattle Commons walking tour these guys are planning for us. This is a travel tour back not only through time, but also across space. And we're going to look finally at the problems the Commons was intended to solve in the first place, whether these problems of yesterday are the same ones that some of our current massive city projects, like the LID I-5 proposal or the Seattle Waterfront Development, are also trying to solve. So put on your virtual hiking boots as we blaze new trails. We're going to walk through history and swamplands in the next hour. And as always, we have a new opportunity for you at the end of the show. So stick around. So let's start by introducing you guys to our audience, your tour guides who work at different organizations currently in your day jobs. Where did you guys first meet? Weston and I met about eight years ago at Forterra, which was in those days called Cascade Land Conservancy. I was an AmeriCorps volunteer. I had just moved out here from Wisconsin. Weston, you were... I was an employee doing research on people, nature, and the city. You're great to have as guests, A, because what you're interested in is so fascinating, but also our guests are really comprised of two groups, people that have, like Weston, that have been here, like myself, for decades and are just really surprised at all the changes. And then we also have a lot of guests that are newcomers, like Chris, who maybe don't know where we've come from. So what is the Cascade Land Conservancy for Terra? It's a large regional nonprofit focused on Western Washington that had historically been a traditional land conservancy focused on preserving natural spaces. In the more recent decades has focused more on how do we bring the other piece of the puzzle? What does urban space need to look like as an alternative to growth in natural areas, farms, and forests? So Weston, your um, resume looks like you're interested in building healthier and more efficient communities by acknowledging the importance of natural resources, trees and parks and so forth? Yeah. So tell us yeah, about those much. interests. My career has now been focused on managing urban nature and kind of all the facets that make up that kind of endeavor. We know that people have a connection to nature. We know that nature is important for our health. And we know that cities are important for our culture and all these other things. And how do we marry those two and ensure that they can both develop in concert? 
Chris, you are a new, relatively, you've been here for eight years? Comparatively. I came out here in uh, January of 2010. And you have an MA in public administration and international studies. You're a researcher, activist, and you contribute through environmental advocacy, political yeah. campaigns, or tell yeah. us what you do. Sure, yes. You know, short answers, I've done a variety of things, but there's sort of a common thread that I've done. I've done policy work and political work in a few different areas now. So as we mentioned earlier, Weston and I met through Forterra when we were both there. And even though I was sort of doing kind of on the ground environmental restoration at the time, I still still got a flavor for the policy work that Forterra was doing. And from there, I ended up going to graduate school. I'm a graduate of University of Washington, went to policy school there at the, at the Evans School of Public Policy and Governance, as it's as it's now called. And now I'm offering my services as a, as a researcher and policy analyst through my firm, Research in Action. At the very beginning, when you first moved, you worked hands-on in environmental restoration. I'm just curious, what environments or what areas did you actually work on? Uh, it's because of blackberries that I... I um, I came out here and, and had a job. I should say a volunteer gig uh, through AmeriCorps. So <laughs> I'm especially indebted to this invasive species, as as we call it, because I spent a lot of time removing blackberries from urban parks by hand, leading events, organizing events, recruiting volunteer forest stewards to lead their own environmental restoration events. So it was a fun year in, in 2010 doing that work. And then you have worked on political campaigns? Yes, I have done some political work, sort of an adjunct to political campaigns through my work in organized labor. You brought in something that looks like it's a piece of urban nature. Yes, what exactly. That's very much what I brought in. <laughs> I brought in a piece of urban nature. It happens to be a dandelion, but the broader point being it could be anything. But I wanted to bring in something that wasn't super exciting. I like the idea of something that's ubiquitous, that's everywhere, that's maybe more important than we think. And also something that is initially really disliked, but perhaps that's because there hasn't been enough thought into it. So I think that's kind of an important element as well. And then also that it's probably inevitable that there's going to be dandelions. And I think that's another theme we can talk about when we get into South Lake Union, the history of Seattle, development, nature in the city. Curious about the sort of methodology that you use or that what sort of framework you go to when sort of understanding these issues, nature in the city. That's a good question. I think a big part of it is cultural relevancy. You know, nature doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. And understanding that right up front is really critical. You can see cities all over the world encounter and experience nature in much different ways. What's going to be healthy and happy to one community is going to be something completely different for somebody else. And just up front acknowledging cultural relevancy as a topic when you're talking about nature automatically shifts that conversation that we're in the city, we're talking about people first and foremost. That's going to be the key driver much more than, you know, you can talk about sunlight and soil and water and all those things, but they're going to be kind of down the priority list. And then you advocate for green spaces as a benefit for just wellness. How do green spaces make us healthier, happier? And essentially all the things that lead to health and happiness. As I mentioned, they have cultural relevancy, right? They're important to who we are. We build connections with them. Green space is also really valuable as an educational tool, as a scientific tool, and all those components of culture that maybe are a little more concrete. And then there's all the things that maybe are a little easier to come up with, right? We need clean air, we need clean water. Those are key benefits we get from nature. And then also as a place to interact, right? Recreation space, a draw towards outdoors, some of the things that we often miss when we live in the city. And then how do we measure like wellness or well-being as a function of being exposed to nature? There are a lot of ways that that's being done. I don't think any of them are comprehensive nor particularly the end-all be-all. This is really where the field is at, is mm -hmm. starting to develop those metrics. You'll see lots of things about, oh, the number of acres of open space per capita 
or the distance between a residence and a park as kind of really simple cues to how we're doing for these types of things. But it's obvious that a lot more depth and detail exists in these topics. Yeah. Okay, so it's a growing field. And I would imagine scarcity is a factor because there's just less and less nature. We read every single day about we're losing species. And then in Seattle, on a local level, we're losing space. We're losing density, which is you know generally thought of as a good thing for creating more dynamic, more transportation forward city. It's also tearing up trees and we're losing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, competition for space is is definitely an issue that's out there. There was a Sightline article yesterday actually comparing development to canopy growth in the city and kind of saying maybe there isn't this conflict. Uh, really, really innovative. And I think that, that's that with more growth comes more tree canopy? Perhaps, at least at a certain point in a certain scale. And that where trees exist and where trees probably have space to exist are areas where we're not growing. Right, growth is happening, yeah. say, in the South Lake Unions, which weren't heavily treed areas. It was a lot of parking lots. Right. Yeah. Um, and you can go to Denny Triangle now, and there's more trees than there was 10, 15 years ago, even though we've seen dramatic growth. So these things aren't necessarily at odds with each other. But the bigger issue is, yes, we're confined for space, but doesn't mean it has to be a trade-off. We can look at a lot of efficiencies. Um, things like parking lots. How many parking lots and driveways and lawns and underutilized space do we have when we could say, okay, how do we really get this into something that's going to work for people, whether it's more housing, more buildings, or whether it's more nature? Can you walk us through a recently designed park or open space in Seattle that had a really successful plan? A great question. You know, so that keeps coming to my mind is Fremont Peak Park. I don't know if you're familiar. I actually helped create it. Okay, yeah. so there you go. You can <laughs> you can tell us. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Okay, yeah. I had no idea, by the way, to the listeners. This is completely uh, <laughs> exciting. How fortuitous. Yeah, I was going to just get as far as saying community-driven project that also met the broader city's goal that there need to be more green space in that particular area and involved kind of the business community and kind of brought together those kind of three different entities that often are at odds but actually can work together to produce a really great space. So Seattle adopted this green factor calculation in 2006, and it specifies the degree of coverage of plants and greenery used to design around new development. Do we have enough green space per capita? in your opinion? And then how would you measure that against other cities? No, in my opinion, one word. Can I ask you why yeah. we don't? Like, what is it that maybe caused us not to have as much? Because we're supposedly a very green, you know, the Pacific Northwest, Seattle, nature's close to us. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of the equation, right? And I think ideas come up quite a bit, but Seattle has historically been the frontier. You don't build parks on the frontier. You, you're in you're in it. You're in nature. And so we go back to the founding of Seattle we didn't ever design a central park because it wasn't needed. The park was Puget Sound. It mm. was the Cascades, right? It was taken for granted then. That yeah. Nature's all around us. Right. Nature was all around us. And, you know, uh, slowly that starts to shift and all of a sudden we're in the middle of a large metropolitan region. And so, yeah, if I, if I had to guess on why that is, but I think it's also not uncommon. I think most places would claim they want more green space. Last month, we had Seattle Mayor Norm Rice. He joined our podcast as our guest. He was actually mayor during the Commons Project, and he talked extensively about the importance of civic engagement and finding agreement through dialogue between government and citizens and also between citizens. And he actually helped kind of create a, just a, probably a more workable framework for that communication. So what is your experience working with city government, and does it do a good job of listening from your perspective of input from citizens? Yes. I mean, I think it does do a good job of listening, especially comparatively. But again, it's tough to compare. I think Seattle has a completely different set of expectations when it comes to this. We have the Seattle process as a kind of a known dogma, right? And how would you define that for our listeners that are new to Seattle? Seattle process is just 
a lot of process, a lot of public input, and a lot of deliberation, sometimes at the expense of what we're talking about, you know, at a, of a project. At the expense it, of, like, execution? Exactly. Okay. And I'm not trying to place value one way or the other. I think that's just kind of where we're at. Oftentimes, that's really a good thing, and oftentimes it's not. So that said, I think it's hard to kind of objectively say Seattle does a poor job at listening to citizens, but Seattle is also a really active citizen community. We have comparatively a more active citizen community, number of groups that organize, all those types of things. Seattle is off the charts when you look at our peers, especially when it comes to things like the environment. And so it's a tougher situation to navigate when you have a stronger citizen outcry, you have a better organized citizen groups, you have more informed citizen groups. The political machinery of cities historically doesn't really work as well. Can you just defi yeah, define the conflict? <laughs> city ideally has a goal and is trying to achieve something. Oftentimes that aligns with a community goal and oftentimes it doesn't. Most often there's a dozen different community views, right? And these types of large public efforts always devolve into two-sided, right? There's always kind of the city view or kind of the prevailing plan and then there's opposition to that. When in reality, opposition to that is for a dozen different reasons. There might also be support for it. Or, but in the public realm, we typically make all things two-sided arguments. So at the beginning of every show, I always ask our guests to share with us a place in the greater Seattle area that's special to them and maybe that other people might not know about. Chris, do you have anything that comes to mind? I do have a place. The place is a new park that I also helped create. I won't overstate it, but I was part of the community process to for Broadway Hill Park in Capitol Hill which is a small tract of land on federal and Republican. When I lived in Capitol Hill, it was just sort of this empty lot. I moved to Capitol Hill in, in 2010, and so, you know, as a recent transplant, I was kind of just getting a little bit of a start in the Seattle process, right? So I learned a lot about the various steps that it takes to take a plot of unused land to an official public park. So that was a good, overall, a very good experience. I was part of the, as I said, part of the citizen group and attended a lot of community meetings and helped raise money. And I don't live in Capitol Hill anymore, unfortunately, although I, I love that neighborhood. And anytime I'm in, in the area, I love stopping by Broadway Hill Park and just checking it out. I so. feel the same way about Fremont Peak Park because you helped create it. And it's, thank you for doing that. Yeah, yeah, of course. So you got a taste of the Seattle process. What could have been improved at the grassroots level, really driving the creation of a new park? What was not working for you? What could have been done better? I won't say that there's anything that was inherently a negative experience. It, there was just a lot of jockeying around in terms of lining up different funding for the park. The city was offering really incredible resources to do this, right, and giving citizens quite a good deal of input and, in some cases, control over the process. So, How long did it take? It took several years. It was finally unveiled in, I want to say, like 2015. And I sort of got started in it in fall of 2010. These are relatively smaller spaces, and now we're going to sort of go from the microcosm to the big and talk about the Seattle Commons. For those listeners that are not familiar with the Commons, it was a proposed 61-acre park, and I think the size of it sort of varied. There were a few different proposals, but roughly 60 acres. It was backed by Paul Allen and narrowly defeated twice, 1995 and 96. So you guys worked together within Atlas Obscura, and you're right now in the process of finalizing the tour? Yes. The tour is happening on September 23rd. And in terms of finalizing it, we're ready to go. We're very excited about it. And then you're both a part of Atlas Obscura. So what is, for our guests that don't know, what is Atlas Obscura and how did you come to find it and where they find you? Atlas Obscura is a nationwide organization focused on finding the mystery and magic in everyday life. And it kind of started as just a website. And now it's expanded into holding events in various cities throughout the country. And it also has a bit of an international presence as well. So the website's really great. It's literally an atlas of obscure things that might be just around the corner in your neighborhoods. How did the idea of a tour of the Seattle Commons begin? 
So I should say, as soon as I started working with Atlas Obscura, it was really sort of this playground for me to think of like all the things I love about Seattle and how I can share them with others. And so one of the things I found really fascinating was this kind of its recent history, the Seattle Commons Project. And so I think that's almost what makes it more fascinating is that it feels like something that it really kind of redirected the fate of downtown development, but it didn't happen that long ago. And so I remember when Weston first brought it up to me and, and mentioned it when we first started hanging out, and I was kind of shocked at the scale of it and how different the South Lake Union neighborhood would be had the project been more popular with the voters, I suppose. And it was almost passed, right? It was like 47 to 53, so yeah, that's also twice. fascinating. Another thing is that the, since the comment is dead, like it didn't happen, is it weird to sort of offer a tour of a place <laughs> that is in recent history that never got to be, or it seems like a yeah, kind of just utopian sort of vision. So how does that work, Chris? For me, that's the draw of it. That's what kind of made me want to offer this is that it is a vision of something that could have, it could have been different, right? It's something that doesn't exist, yet we're still talking about it, right? It exists as much as it can in conversation, in the history of the city, in our consciousness in some way. So the idea of the tour was really to, to as best we can, try to bring it to life and to talk through what it could have been, to try to experience the space, you know, a little bit differently, especially as a transplant. I think that that's a valuable perspective to offer. I know it's valuable for me to think about the city as a vibrant place that's constantly changing. You know, the Seattle that I was attracted to when I was planning on moving out here isn't the Seattle I live in now. So I feel like this is a great opportunity to think, you know, a little more deeply about those changes and how the city is is changing and how it could have looked and perhaps how it will look in the future. So John Hinterberger had a series of commons in the early 90s about, and I think he was a proponent of the park. Who is John and what was inspiring about his kind of description or engagement as a journalist? Um, I don't know that much about him, except for that he was kind of one of the leading voices and that what he hit on was a great idea, but it wasn't like a piece of genius, right? This was something that was right below the surface with everybody was that, oh, Seattle's growing again. You know, it's the 90s. We should find a way to get some really nice open space in the midst of the city. And I think that's why the idea caught on and why it was successful is because it made sense to so many people. So again, this may be obvious to you because of your field. And I think we know that most people agree that open space and green canopy and so forth is a good thing and makes it healthier. But specifically with this space in this location, what were the clear benefits or what do you see? It's something Chris and I actually talked about the onset of this, which was that South Lake Union had the advantage of location. It was adjacent to downtown activity, but comparatively, relatively vast underutilized. It was kind of uh, low density commercial and light industrial activities. So just by virtue of its location in the city between downtown and the lake was kind of this prime spot for activity. Other pieces of that is relatively cheap real estate. It was primed for some level of activity. And that kind of gets into some of the drivers of how this happened and and also a big piece of the criticism of it, which was that this was a playground for the rich and a benefit to the poor, but wouldn't really help the average Seattleite. So one thing that occurs to me is like walking through on the, with you guys on this tour is the voices, like who are the people, who are the voices in any type of civic engagement? There could be 14 or 15 different communities, not all of which were in agreement and although partially so. So Chris, I'm wondering, are there particularly voices, you know, as you're going through this tour that occurred to you and what were the arguments for the commons and against the commons that are relevant or interesting? It was an interesting soundbite that, from my understanding, got replayed quite a bit, that this project was going to be playground for the rich and some open space for the poor and nothing for the middle class. You know, whether or not that's the case, I mean, I think that's certainly sounds like an oversimplification. But I think it's interesting to think about that kind of rhetoric. I think that what the space ended up being in terms of this, the quote unquote, playground for the, for the rich, it matches so closely to the rhetoric of the original proposal, too. And so it's interesting that we don't get to 
vote on what property owners do with their property. And I think to some extent, the development was sort of, the writing was on the wall, right? That this area was going to be developed right. in some way. It was a question of if the public wanted the cut or not. And the voters, the electorate, as it was constituted in mid-90s, said no. So I want to just read you back a sort of opposed voice. And it's great with Weston here because you're a proponent of open spaces and parks. But this is what the rebuttal said. We can't maintain the parks we have. Seattle has 351 parks, over 5,000 acres, including almost 20 acres in the South Lake Union area. Today, most parks have to be closed at night for safety reasons, and many are inhospitable during the daylight hours. The city currently has 300 million backlog of major maintenance and planned improvements needed for visiting parks. The levy money will not address these. So the perception is really that parks are a danger, a public danger. Yeah, that's uh, definitely the spin there. And they're equating a bunch of different things with park. A park is different than a well-funded park, is different than a well-designed park, is different than a well-located park, right? There's all those different components that all get wrapped together. And if, sure, you can choose the negative of all of those and paint a much different picture. Yeah, that's a good point in terms of funding and, and design. Those kinds of criticisms could be leveled at like an empty lot in the middle of a neighborhood. You know, that's not a park. That's a place that was sort of just has an absence of thought. What about the argument, though, that this would be only for the rich and the very poor? How do parks get designed or open spaces get designed in a way to be inclusive for all people? I think a big piece of that is that we didn't design a city where the middle class could live downtown. The whole central part of Seattle has, in a lot of ways, continues that dichotomy, right? There's affordable public housing options, and then there's the market rate, which is astronomically Eight hundred dollars a square yeah. foot, yeah. So I don't think that's changed. That's, you know, a function of real estate. And a function of design. We haven't really thought through how do we do middle-class family housing with density. And I've read some studies. It seems I've always wondered, I've lived in other cities. I've lived in San Francisco, Chicago, New York, where you actually have families, apart from their class, having parents and children. Downtown, that really doesn't happen in Seattle. One study that I read, it was the number of bathrooms that are accessible that you don't have to pay to use, and then also parks. Those are what cause families to be in urban centers. Yeah, I think is that, that, is that I, so. I, yeah. I've heard those uh, quoted. Yeah, parks and affiliated facilities. You know, whether it's bathrooms, community centers, boys and girls clubs, right? Yeah. Things to do, places to go. And the, the other big one is schools. We don't have any really centrally located schools in this in this city. So one of the criticisms of the current South Lake Union area that maybe I'll express that I've heard others say is that it feels very prefab, that all the newer buildings were kind of developed more by the same company, Vulcan, around the same time. It doesn't have like the texture and layers of urban areas. So as you go through your tour, I don't know, is that an accurate criticism? I, I mean, Weston can probably speak to this more, but I think that's an accurate criticism. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of architecture is that oftentimes there are economies to scale, right? You can have one design I almost think of it like, uh, if you're thinking of a grid, think of it like an Excel spreadsheet, like click and drag, like this design, three or four blocks, and that's easier than designing a distinct building for you know each of those blocks. So there's a lot of that that we're seeing in Seattle, not just in South Lake Union, but generally. I mean, there's obviously an upside in terms of increased density, but it's another change that Seattle is experiencing. I think what happened after the commons failed was that one, Vulcan, Vulcan is the name of the company that the, the, sort of the real estate arm of Paul Allen's real estate investment business ended up redeveloping many of the properties themselves. And so that's another thing. In most cities, you have a, lots of different developers, different goals, whereas here it's really one entities. I mean, is that a fair? And, think, and that's both good and bad. But Yeah, I think that's part of the story with the building appearances. Definitely, right? Is if you have a single entity, you're much less likely to have diversity of building structures. And in the same era. Right. And and right, all built at the same time. So you're talking about a large number of blocks contiguous to each other being redeveloped at the same point in time. It's going to be really, really difficult to have any variation in what you're seeing. So um, is it going to look kitschy? You know, is a lot of the buildings that were developed by Vulcan, you know, around sure. the same decade and 20 years are not going to look sort of kitschy? Like it's... Well, I mean, that's one of the fascinating things to me is yeah, we could look at 
back at this and say, oh, my God, this is so ugly. Like, how do we let this happen? You know, I wish there was those 1930s laundries that were here before. Or we could, you know, have the thing nationally preserved as like this, you know, it's the epitome of the 2010s. And like, it's a whole neighborhood of all this style. It's like the pioneer square of the 21st century. I mean, it's probably much less likely, but I think trying to be objective about what's happening there, that's a possibility. I think the buildings are pretty ugly. Sure. That's my opinion. And I think it might be the majority opinion, but it's tough to speak for my kids and sure, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Yeah, I think that's that's part of the fun of it. And when something feels oppressive and impactful, I like to look for the fun in it. And that's part it's, of it. It's funny because there were a lot of auto dealerships down there, right? And those buildings are now being either torn down or reconverted. But now you have Tesla. You know, it's like the auto dealer of the millennium Absolutely. is the one that's it's the only one standing. <laughs> right. Takes up much less real estate, their showroom. <laughs> And you were talking about how the single entity notion of Paul Allen kind of having a lot of control, and I think that's a big part of it. But I think it's also important to remember that there was already writing on the wall. I think it was Children's Hospital was down there, and this kind of biomed thing was already growing, I think, as early back as 92, 93. REI moving their, you know, flagship headquarters there. So there was more than, you know, just one entity, but kind of maybe just enough supporting that made this type of investment not too risky. Right. But comparatively, relatively vastly underutilized. It was kind of uh, low-density commercial and light industrial activities. So just by virtue of its location in the city between downtown and the lake was kind of this prime spot for activity. Other pieces of that is relatively cheap real estate. So it was primed for some level of activity. And that kind of gets into some of the drivers of how this happened and then also a big piece of the criticism of it, which was that the this was a playground for the rich and a benefit to the poor, but wouldn't really help the average Seattleite. You know, in this tapestry of the grand vision for the park, what are the remnants that are still there or have are even more wonderful maybe than were envisioned in the 90s? Well, first, we've been talking about it. The biggest remnant is massive development, right, which was part of the plan and is what we're seeing today. The South Lake Union Park and then pieces of the Cascade neighborhood, which is kind of this description of a place that's more or less been forgotten. Is it still called? Do we Cascade, still call it Cascade? I think, I think people that live there still call it that. And there is a Cascade Park, a Cascade yeah. Pea Patch, and that section of South Lake Union has always had a lesser zoning, kind of the intention being that as the portion of that neighborhood that was residential prior to the commons, they wanted to afford it a few more protections to try to kind of keep that neighborhood somewhat intact. And I don't think that's necessarily worked that way, but it has added some diversity and intrigue to that space. Another question that comes up is the contours. When we started, you know, I asked you to bring in some three-dimensional item. And so we don't have the actual map in the studio, but we pulled it up on the computer. Yeah. And it's actually this beautiful, very sort of symmetrical park, you know, offset a little bit on South Lake Union. So the contours of the park, is that part of the tour where the park and then the other parts of the neighborhood that, as it was planned, sort of contour out? You know, in terms of the tour, we were planning on meeting at Denny Park and then kind of winding our way through the Cascade neighborhood and then ending... Actually ending at like South Lake Union Park. And Denny Park was there well before the commons. Absolutely. I think Weston, wasn't it the oldest? Yeah, Denny Park is the, the park. oldest park in Seattle, which is yeah, another great juxtaposition of like open space. So what are the pitfalls for the Seattle Commons experience? What would be the pitfalls around planning and engagement that we can learn from? I think part of it is that put all of our park hopes in this one approach. And what I keep thinking back is that we compare the commons to Central Park in New York and like, oh, we could have had Seattle Central Park. That's mm -hmm. the, what we hear about. But Central Park is managed and operated by a large nonprofit called Central Park Conservancy that works with the Parks Department. The commons failed because we needed public money for it to work. We could have set up a scenario where we didn't necessarily need public money for it to work. Paul Allen could have said, oh, yeah, I want to put in an endowment for this park 
and build a large nonprofit that will manage and mm-hmm. operate it and mm-hmm. work in conjunction with the Parks Department. Mm-hmm. And in return, I'm going to get to do all this development. And that could have been the approach we used for the commons. How would the public have responded to that approach where there was some ownership on the part of Paul Allen? Because there were these arguments against the park that it was unmanageable, too expensive. Right. So. To some extent, you, it would have been pushback for those saying like, oh, look, here's a source of funding for management. You know, We don't want to add a park without a way to steward it. But there also would have been the flip side of, Oh, well, now here's, you know, a single entity with too much power, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But it's stewardship is what you're talking about is that that was that's the piece at Central Park that makes it really work in partnership with the city. Yeah, it's, of, of it, New York. there's a reason that it's beautiful, right? It has a huge amount of investment and the community cares about it. And there's never going to be a shortage of funding for Central Park. And they, But what they've done is set up a system that allows for donations and the endowment and the foundation, all these different components to work together. It seems like I've been watching a little bit of the Pike Place Market Foundation and kind of how that works. There's very fine-grained donations. You can get a little locket on the hanging from the chain or whatever. So on a very individual citizen level, and then there is a foundation that's been helping because the Pike Place Market also has had this recent expansion, right? So there's a lot of new areas. Eventually, the viaduct will come down, and all of that, much of that land will become a public benefit. But it seems like they have also a kind of a carefully manicured foundation that helps manage the space so that the onus doesn't fall upon voters or the city. Right. And I think you bring up a great point with the waterfront and the waterfront park and that process we're going through now. And it seems to me there's definitely that lesson learned from the commons that there needs to be a community entity in place with funding mechanisms to steward the space, work with the entities, the government, the public, businesses to really facilitate that kind of development. I think in the 90s, I have the data here. It said it, the voters rejected a plan to pay $48 a year in property taxes toward this commons project. To succeed, it needed $111 million in public funding. So it was also a funding issue. Yeah. And that may seem like a lot, may seem like a little. And you can kind of go back and compare that to, say, the forward thrust and the transit systems we decided to never vote for. You could paint Seattle as a history of voting no on public infrastructure, or you could paint it the other way, too. And I think a lot of it just comes down to what your acceptance is for, you know, what should we be doing? How progressive should we be? How often should we be voting for some massive project? You know, that reminds me, too, of the, you asked, like, what lessons can be learned from the Seattle Commons? There's an old adage in politics that, you know, there's one group of constituents who will never show up at the polls, and that's future generations, right? That that's the, the people who are going to live there in the future. And so I think the Seattle Commons project is, is a case of that. I get the sense that the vote, you know, it was very slimly defeated. And I get the sense that, you know, if the vote were taken today, it could perhaps go differently based on the, the current makeup of Seattle voters. And again, as somebody who is comparatively new to the region, I feel like I'm always learning more about the way that this region was developed. And it seems like the Puget Sound has this history of being developed in ways where the concerns of the people who were making the decisions decades ago are not at all the concerns of the people who are living there now. And so this seems like a very old kind of story that keeps being told over and over in in the Puget Sound area. We're continuing to grow. I wanted to just take a minute to look into the future, kind of where the opportunities are for us in Seattle. So now we're the people of today kind of thinking about, you know, our children and their children. One of our previous guests, Kevin Eckert, who's an architect here in Seattle, mentioned Magnuson Park. He felt like this is one of the greatest opportunities in Seattle. It's rich, it's textured, it's old, but there's a lot of really great things happening now. Affordable housing, new restaurant just opened up a few weeks ago, et cetera. What do you see as sort of the blank canvases, if you will, the areas of opportunity? They don't have to be big ones like Magnuson Park, but around parks, open space, public benefit. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting question because using a spatial lens to talk about opportunity is, you know, it has to be a, a point. And I kind of tend to think of it more as what are the features that are 
everywhere that are the opportunities. You know, is it reducing parking requirements? Is it better utilizing a certain type of space that's we've found in a lot of places? But that doesn't give us these big chunks of space. That, but that's awesome. So it's you're looking more systematically rather than you know in physical space. So what are some factors then that we should think about maybe to help us define? I think it's just really looking at what's the value we're getting of this piece of land. And you mentioned something like $800 a square foot. But if you start thinking in those terms, you know, you walk down the street and you say, oh, here's this driveway and it's 600 square feet. Does this person really want to be paying property taxes for 600 square feet of this? You know, how better could we be utilizing this space? Is it a pocket park? Is it they could, you know, build something there and rent it out to three people? Just being more efficient and a little more thoughtful with space in general probably is going to be easier than, you know, carving out contiguous dozen Uh blocks. Chris? What's fresh in my mind is actually I was biking around the Duwamish uh, Trail today, early this morning, and I was kind of struck by actually some quite nice green space along the waterway. I recently moved to the south end. This has kind of become my new backyard. And so I feel like this is an area where it's going to be a challenge, but also an opportunity to think about the development decisions that people made in the past and try to humanize them and and turn them into livable spaces. Challenge being, you know, while still being able to utilize them, you know, in sort of a functional way. The LID I-5 project, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Do you see that as an opportunity area to achieve more livability, more green space? I have a strong, perhaps unpopular decision on it, but it's a definite opportunity. And I say that in that I think I-5 in general is a definite opportunity. Talking about a a huge scar through the city of space that's mostly utilized by non-residents and utilized at a detriment to the residents of the city and the planet. But my qualm with lit I-5 is it's extremely expensive, and I'd rather just start planning for a no I-5 future. You know, if you put a tenth of that money into lobbying WashDOT to reroute I-5 to 405, de-emphasizing I-5 in Seattle, and then another tenth of that money building a a different mechanism. Eventually, you could get I-5 cut way down, narrowed, opening up a million other opportunities instead of kind of just accepting that, all right, I-5 infrastructure of the mid-20th century is our future. We're going to build around it. Why not say, okay, well, what's the infrastructure of the future? And let's build that. You know, it's this, how much do we accept and try to make better? And how much do we say, no, we want to move? So that's more of a radical notion. So I guess, you know, climate change, you know, we can talk about is how that because it's something that I think a lot of us just think about with children what where we're going you know as a planet so to what extent does your work kind of relate to kind of a global picture and then your cohorts and your colleagues throughout the globe is there an opportunity to address like such a massive issue on a local level yeah and I think it's part of this check on is what you're doing the right approach and if I'm engaged in this effort is it going to be detrimental to people you know one scale away from me two scales away from me building a park has benefits for the people using it has benefits for the broader community has benefits for the planet. So in that sense, very much so. I tend to focus on those smaller scale notions with kind of that in mind. You know, this isn't necessarily for the purpose of climate change, but it's actually going to benefit. And I think when you're talking about nature and trees and climate, cities are a tough sell because they just don't hold that many trees, right? If you want to plant trees to slow down climate change, there's better places to plant them. However, trees in the city do so much more than that. They're going to help you mitigate for the impacts of climate change, reduce temperatures that deal with flooding and stormwater, sea level rise, all those types of issues. So climate is definitely something that you can impact by focusing on, on urban nature, even if it's not going to, say, soak up the most carbon. And I would say is, is more beneficial because you get everything else that comes with it, including mm-hmm. those cultural values, the attachments. And- Chris? One of the things that always kind of gives me hope is, and it's the reason I moved to Seattle, right? Seattle has a reputation for being on the edge in so many ways, right? It's on the edge of the continent. It's on the cutting edge of progressive politics. It's on the 
cutting edge of environmental policy. You know, the rest of the country really does look to the West Coast. And I know it's in these times, we kind of forget that, but we're really an incubator of policy. So you're in a, the perfect position to answer this question. You know, what type of models are needed now and research needed to better inform designing more healthier, greener communities? What's missing in terms of analysis, research, or models? I should just clarify, my background isn't specifically in environmental policy, but I think the, the sorts of things that we're just talking about, right? Thinking about how cities can contribute to environmental policy, how we can have livable areas in cities that are also you know, environmentally friendly. Thinking about, as you mentioned, green space per capita, that's a huge element of urban policy. And then if you're gonna plant a tree, Obviously, where are you going to get the most bang for your buck if you're if the goal of it is offsetting climate change? I mean, it's easy to sort of like plant trees and feel good about it, right? That's a, gr a great thing to do, and they do more than offset climate change. But I think more and more that this sort of quantitative aspect is going to be more important. Understanding, you know, how to get if we have sort of you know crossed the threshold as far as climate change is concerned, at least how do we not cross it so far? I guess and and try to try to mitigate it as best we can. Yeah, I think you make a good point about bang for the buck, right? And in my mind, we need to do a better job at making legible the connections we get from urban nature, both the negative impacts and the positive benefits. You know, and if we understood more clearly, say, the health benefits and could say, wow, you know, healthcare is the cost that is kind of crushing this generation. And is it more efficient to perhaps, you know, invest in healthy green spaces than paying for it after you know, on the far end. And so if we could better build those connections, it might, you know, have a more efficient way to manage for our healthcare and get green space and climate and all those things in line too. And that's just looking at one benefit. That's just looking at health. Could probably do the same as we do for things like carbon. We price out carbon. You could do it for stormwater and, and flood control. All the expense involved in all the expenses, dealing with the water, yeah. the sewage treatment when we have the right. overflow. Yeah. Right. And the better we understand those benefits we get from nature and the more legible we can make those benefits and or impacts, the stronger we can make those ties and find funding for some of these things. Well, one takeaway today is that maybe the era of really grand plans maybe ended with the Seattle Commons and that maybe the future is, you know, to Weston's point, maybe thinking more systematically in a more complex way at kind of what people need and then implementing like you did with the little park Absolutely. on Capitol Hill. Well, again, a big shout out to Chris Blado and Weston Brinkley. They will be leading a tour through That's Atlas correct. Obscura yep. up September 23rd. September 23rd. Yep. You can go to atlasobscura.com. The tour is called uh, Seattle's Central Park. Go to the website and go to the city section, select Seattle. It'll come up right away. It's, a, it's an upcoming event. We invite all of our listeners to please join for the tour if you'd like to learn more and dive even more deeply into the Seattle Commons, physically walk through all the places we talked about today. So thank you. In our next episode, we will welcome Bradley Corey, founder of B9 Architects. Bradley and his team at B9's goal is to foster positive change through place-specific modern architecture focused on sustainable, transit-oriented, and walkable communities. They design urban single-family and multifamily housing project, live-work dwellings, and commercial interior spaces. And they work throughout core Seattle neighborhoods, including Queen Anne Hill and Capitol Hill. So join us next week for a lively discussion with Bradley, and we can see how one of the agents of change is reshaping the urban environment throughout Seattle. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For those of you who stayed tuned, we'll have a chance to win two tickets to the walking tour of the Seattle Commons Project. The first person to send us an email to edwardk at ekreg with the subject title, I want those tickets. We'll get to go meet Chris and Weston in person and learn more about the alternative Seattle history that could have been. The tour again is September 23rd, Sunday from 1 p.m. to 2.45. For more information, you can also visit our website at EKRAG and find the link to Atlas Obscura. 
Send your questions and requests to edwardk at ekreg as well. And if there's a place in Seattle that matters to you most, we'd love to hear about it. As always, thank you for turning in. Join us next time to hear from others like Chris and Weston about places in Seattle that matter most. Thank you. Thank you.